When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R8, The Thousand Year Gap. In October 1871, Heinrich Schliemann returned to Hisarlik with a vengeance, turning 70 workmen loose on the mound for a period of six weeks. It was only near the end of the dig, at a depth of around 30 feet, that Schliemann finally struck pay dirt, excavating a cache of Bronze Age metalwork. Though the find was small, it was enough to fire his imagination and ensure his return the following year. In April 1872, Schliemann redoubled his efforts engaging 120 workmen to remove 60 cubic meters of earth per day for a period of four and a half months. I've heard mention of his using gunpowder to demolish earthen walls. I couldn't find a solid reference to confirm this, but really it's kind of academic. Even without gunpowder, Schliemann had little trouble doing plenty of serious and irreparable damage to the site. Anything that appeared classical or later was basically in his way, and, obsessed with finding Homer's Troy, Schliemann tore through intervening structures and layers with a reckless abandon. Symbolic of his approach was the huge trench he dug, 79 yards wide and 14 yards deep, bisecting the mound from north to south. Subtlety was not Schliemann's strong suit. After a time, Schliemann reconnected with the Bronze Age stratum he'd found the previous year, unearthing copper tools, gold, silver, and bronze pins and knives, and terracotta tankards. He then drove on further down, convinced that the earliest stratum must be Troy. When he finally reached the lowest level, around 45 feet below the surface, he found in his own words, nothing, just a few black glossy vessels and other minor trinkets. In June, apparently with Calvert's okay, and please do not ask me why Calvert gave his okay, Schliemann finally started digging in the eastern half of the mound. 
Unsurprisingly, the first massive trench he dug pretty much obliterated Calvert's earlier work. A week later, Schliemann made his first major discovery, a marble metope from the classical era featuring a relief of Helios or Apollo riding in a chariot. Schliemann immediately wanted to cut away the decorative side pieces to lighten the weight, but Calvert somehow managed to talk him down. Since the find was made on Calvert's land, the arrangement was to split it 50-50, which, in cases like this, meant one of them buying the other out. Calvert, in desperate financial straits, ended up settling for the sum of 49 British pounds for his half, based partly on Schliemann's estimate of its worth. Calvert would later learn that Schliemann planned to sell the piece for 14,000 pounds, and was also bragging to other scholars about how little he'd paid Calvert for it. Seriously, I'm trying to be fair to Schliemann here, but wow. Just wow. By the close of the season, in mid-August 1872, there was little doubt that Schliemann had done major and important work. In the end, he dug through a total of five layers of previous habitation, including one with Bronze Age remains. By Schliemann's account, he'd amassed over 100,000 objects from all depths of the mound. Publicly, he claimed that the Bronze Age stratum he'd found, second from the bottom, was clearly Priam's Troy. But privately, Schliemann admitted to serious doubts. First off, the scale of the Troy he'd found, if it was Troy, seemed much too small to inspire the epic poetry of the Iliad. As he later put it, had Troy been merely this small fortified place, a few hundred men might have taken it in a few days. Another major issue was raised by Calvert in an 1873 letter to the Levant Herald. Clearly exasperated with Schliemann's over-the-top claims, Calvert attempted to set the record straight. In the letter, Calvert very astutely and correctly compared Schliemann's Bronze Age finds with similar finds recently recovered from the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. On this basis, he assigned them a date of roughly 2200 to 1800 BC. In other words, much too early for Priam's Troy. Calvert then went further, asserting that there was a thousand-year gap, dating from around 1800 to 700 BC, that was entirely missing from Schliemann's excavations. And, of course, the Trojan War, if historical, would have taken place smack dab in the middle of the gap. Schliemann's response, unsurprisingly, was to dismiss Calvert's claims as baseless. But, of course, they weren't. What wasn't understood at the time was that the founders of classical Ilion had removed the critical stratum, at least in some areas, in order to create level ground for their new structures. It was shortly after publication of his letter that Calvert first learned the truth about being swindled on the Helios Metope. 
From there, and I'd like to think this was a conscious homage to late Bronze Age international diplomacy, things quickly degenerated into the realm of snippy correspondence. I've decided to spare myself and you the soul-sucking back and forth that ensued. Just take my word for it. Things got pretty nasty. The main practical result was that Schliemann stopped excavating on Calvert's property and, in the spring of 1873, returned to the western half of the mound. This time, he unearthed fortification walls, buildings, paved streets, and a gateway, but nothing that could be linked to Homer or otherwise considered of major interest. That is, until May 31st, when, well, let's just say Schliemann found some stuff, which he immediately hid from the omnipresent government overseer until he could sneak it onto a ship bound for Athens. When Schliemann joined his wife there a few weeks later, he made a detailed inventory of his find. It consisted of silver and gold vases and cups, bronze spearheads, daggers, and axes, a golden sauce boat, gold bracelets, gold headdresses, a gold diadem, golden basket earrings with pendant chains, golden shell earrings, and 8,750 gold beads, sequins, and studs. When it came to naming the find, Schliemann's preference was obvious. What else could it be but Priam's treasure? Of course, by taking such a find out of the country, Schliemann was in breach of his contract with the Turkish government. Which, of course, meant that he needed to keep things quiet. Which, of course, he did not do at all. He even took a famous photo of his wife, Sophia, wearing the golden headdress and earrings, and passed out copies to family and friends. When the Turkish government revoked his excavation permit, Schliemann was, anyone want to guess? Yep, shocked and outraged. Schliemann spent much of the next two years fighting a war on two fronts. The first was an ongoing campaign to recover his right to dig at Hisarlik without turning over Priam's treasure to the Turkish government. The second was a conflict of dueling publications, waged against Calvert and numerous other critics, to convince the world that he'd actually found Homer's Troy. Schliemann's A-bomb in this regard was the 1875 release of Troy and Its Remains. The book, basically an edited version of his excavation notes, was a runaway success. That same year, Schliemann finally settled up with the Turks, paying 2,000 British pounds in compensation for Priam's treasure. But since they still refused to let him dig... Schliemann decided to try his luck at another ancient site. In the summer of 1876, he arrived at the Bronze Age Greek fortress of Mycenae. The site had first been investigated back in 1841 by a Greek antiquarian named Kyriakos Patakis. It was Patakis who'd found and restored the famous Lion Gate, the main entrance to the citadel. 
Schliemann himself had briefly visited the site back in 1874 and, true to form, had sunk several test shafts without permission. This time, at least, he had secured permission from the Archaeological Society of Athens, one of whose members stayed close by to keep an eye on things. Several massive beehive tombs, known as tholos, sat outside the Cyclopean defensive walls, but these had been found and looted centuries before. Schliemann focused his investigations inside the walls, just south of the Lion Gate, where, in late 1876, he made a truly historic find. A large circle of shaft graves containing both royal skeletons and spectacular wealth. After removing a golden death mask from one body, Schliemann exclaimed, I have gazed upon the face of Agamemnon. Which, well, no. The mask was later found to date from the 16th century BC, so maybe Agamemnon's great-great-great-great-grandfather or something. But either way, it was a pretty amazing find and went a long way toward gilding Schliemann's own reputation as the Bronze Age archaeologist par excellence. Much like Austin Henry Laird, Schliemann leveraged both his writings, including Mycenae, published in 1877, and the exhibit of his finds, the Trojan Collection in London and the Greek treasures in Athens, to push for renewed access to his preferred dig site in his case, Hisarlik. So, when it came to enlisting powerful allies, Schliemann went straight to the master, Laird himself. After returning from Nineveh, Laird had begun a second career in liberal politics. First elected to Parliament back in 1852, he'd gone on to hold important positions under three administrations, including membership in Queen Victoria's Privy Council. Critically for Schliemann, Laird was currently serving as British ambassador to Turkey, the same position once held by his old benefactor, Sir Stratford Canning. Sympathetic to Schliemann's difficulties, Laird pledged to do what he could to help him. Schliemann also enlisted another unlikely ally, Frank Calvert. I know, don't get me started. Over the past few years, Calvert had become more and more isolated, particularly after the deaths of two brothers and the emigration of a third. Despite his antagonism toward Schliemann, Calvert was still interested in archaeology, still felt that Troy was waiting beneath his sarlic, and had slowly resigned himself to the fact that Schliemann had become the only game in town. Perhaps most importantly, Calvert had recently become U.S. consular agent at the Dardanelles, which meant that Schliemann, as a U.S. citizen, needed Calvert's help to operate in the region. Their reconciliation was tentative at first, the crux being that they both recognized McLaren's original identification of Hisarlik as Troy as predating either of their own. But soon, additional common ground was found, and subsequent excavations began to assume a more cooperative tone. 
1878, Schliemann finally got permission to resume digging on the western half of the mound, with the understanding that two-thirds of his finds would go to the Imperial Ottoman Museum. In late 1878 and 1879, Schliemann found additional caches of Bronze Age treasure at the same stratum as his previous finds. Of course, he hid the most valuable items from the Turks. We are talking about Schliemann here. Meanwhile, after several years of shopping his Trojan collection to various countries, Schliemann finally settled on Germany. At the time, Berlin's Ethnographical Museum was aggressively seeking pieces from Anatolia, in a bid to compete with the rich collections of London and Paris. In 1880, Schliemann agreed to donate his collection to the people of Berlin, on the condition that all the rooms in which it is exhibited bear my name. As a quick aside, Schliemann's Trojan collection would end up being looted by the Russians at the end of World War II, then go missing for several decades, before finally turning up in 1993 at Moscow's Pushkin Museum. Never one to let a favor go unrequited, Schliemann enlisted the support of the German Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, in getting permission for another dig. Turkish approval was finally granted in October 1881, and by March 1882, Schliemann was back at Hisarlik. This time, at the urging of his patrons, Schliemann was joined by an important new ally, the German architect Wilhelm Derpfeldt. Derpfeldt brought with him two critical assets— First, he had an almost supernatural eye for ancient architecture, and was able to envision how structures had once appeared using only minimal remains. Secondly, he actually got along with Schliemann, who seemed to genuinely appreciate his expertise and insights. Their 1882 season produced no major new discoveries though it did generate material for Schliemann's 1883 book, Troia. In 1884 and 1885, Schliemann and Derpfelt left Turkey to excavate at the Greek side of Tiryns, a Bronze Age coastal hill fort near Mycenae. Their most remarkable find was a palace with a Megaron-style reception hall built around a central hearth. Its walls were extensively decorated with brightly painted frescoes, still considered some of the finest Mycenaean Greek art ever recovered. While Schliemann was eager to resume digging at Hisarlik, he was also concerned about the repercussions of a new Ottoman antiquities law. The law had been drafted by the director of the Imperial Ottoman Museum, Osman Hamdi Bey. Bey was an interesting figure, a highly trained lawyer, painter, and archaeologist who'd been educated in both Paris and Istanbul. As a quick aside, within two years, Bey would unearth my hands-down favorite piece of art in the world, the Alexander Sarcophagus. Anyway, hoping to staunch the flow of Turkey's cultural patrimony out of the country, Bey drafted a regulation based on a similar Greek law designed to curb illegal smuggling by foreigners. 
Unfortunately, blatant abuses by locals were still overlooked, and the law's main result was driving foreign archaeologists away from Anatolia. In 1887 and 1888, Schliemann increasingly turned his attention to the as-yet-untouched site of Knossos, on the Greek island of Crete. But his efforts to purchase the land were unsuccessful. In 1889, with his Hisarlik finds under scholarly attack, Schliemann felt compelled to return to the site one last time. He knew that the only way to both defend his reputation and secure his legacy was to find something, anything, definitively linking Hisarlik with Homer's Troy. In February 1890, Schliemann and Derpfelt began another round of excavations. This time, they focused on the lower city, below the citadel. In all previous digs, the Bronze Age second layer had lain immediately below the foundations of classical Ilion, the thousand-year layer between them mysteriously absent. But here in the lower city, the intervening strata were still present. For the very first time, all the layers of Troy could be put together in a clear and stratified sequence. Of the nine superimposed cities that composed the site, Schliemann had previously identified at least five. These were the three topmost layers, one Roman and two Greek, and the two bottom layers, the lowest one, with its black glossy pottery and not much else, and the second from the bottom, with Bronze Age remains, which Schliemann had identified as Homer's Troy. But, like I mentioned, Calvert had dated the finds from this level to a much earlier period. Schliemann had also identified one additional pre-Greek level, characterized by great pottery, and given it the name of Lydian. With all nine levels now exposed, several things were immediately apparent. And here, I'm going to start using the standard convention— where Troy 1 is the bottom level, and Troy 9 is the surface level. First, there were clearly four intermediate levels, including the Lydian, between Troy 2, Schliemann's Homeric Troy, and Troy 7, the lowest Greek level. Second, the Lydian level, Troy 6, could now be seen to hold not only gray pottery, but also large numbers of distinctive Mycenaean-type stirrup jars. These jars were also common to other sites from late Bronze Age Greece, including both Mycenae and Tyrans. In fact, these jars had also been found in the Egypt of Ramesses II, helping to fix them in the mid-13th century BC. Troy VI also appeared to have several features matching Homer's description. These included a Megaron-style hall, similar to that found in late Bronze Age Tyrans, well-constructed buildings of large dressed stones, and impressive fortification walls, 15 feet wide, 12 feet high, and with a projected circuit of 700 yards. The walls, once uncovered, were found to be sloped and to have a weak section on the western side. 
These aspects are both mentioned in the Iliad, but would have been invisible in Homer's day, suggesting that they must have been passed down from earlier generations. And lastly, like so many other layers of Isarlik, Troy Six had been destroyed by fire. Of course, the idea of Troy Six being Homer's Troy had one major downside. Schliemann had torn completely through that level, across the center of the site, in his rush to reach the bottom of the mound. In fact, the fortification walls of Troy Six had been so well made that Schliemann had mistaken them for a classical construction and demolished a large section to make his trench. The palace of Troy Six, Priams or otherwise, had also been completely destroyed by Schliemann's excavations. Agamemnon himself would have been hard-pressed to do more damage. In the wake of these discoveries, Schliemann focused his attention on two efforts. First, even against mounting evidence, he continued to defend his previous identification of Troy II as Homer's Troy. After all, how could Priam's treasure be, you know, Priam's treasure, if it was really from centuries earlier? Actually, the latest consensus is that Priam's treasure was probably grave goods buried in Troy II by citizens of Troy III or IV. And, speaking of treasure, Schliemann's second effort was sneaking a huge new cache of finds, including finely crafted ceremonial axes, out of the country without either Calvert or the Turkish government catching on. Which was particularly galling, since not only was it the richest find he'd made yet, but Schliemann had actually found the treasure on Calvert's half of the mound. Oh well, you know what they say about old dogs and new tricks. And, okay, it's a bit of a harsh segue, but on Christmas Day 1890, Schliemann collapsed on the streets of Naples and died the next day apparently the victim of a botched ear surgery. He was 68 years old and had been excavating at Hisarlik, on and off, for 20 years. At his funeral in Greece, his partner and friend, Wilhelm Derpfeldt, expressed his wish for Schliemann to rest in peace. You have done enough. It was Derpfeldt who carried on the excavations in 1893 and 1894, this time funded by no less a figure than the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II. In these digs, Derpfeldt uncovered fortification walls, gates, towers, and a doorway, all belonging to Troy VI. Essentially, he felt this structure defined the citadel, or Pergamos, of Homer's Troy, and the actual city was spread over a much larger area below the mound. Ironically, Derpfeldt had begun his latest series of digs in the very same spot as Calvert's first trench, still sitting unfinished from decades before. There appeared to be little room left for doubt. Within a year, both the American Journal of Archaeology and Frank Calvert himself had confidently declared that Troy VI must be the Troy of Homer's Iliad. 
Calvert spent his remaining years dividing his time between his consular duties and ongoing excavations of classical sites across the Troad. In 1908, the elderly diplomat and archaeologist passed away at his home near Hisarlik. Even though he'd been relegated to the sidelines of Schliemann's later digs, I'd like to think that Calvert derived at least some satisfaction from his part in putting the question of Homer's Troy to rest. But was it put to rest? Well, apparently not. Or at least a lot of scholars didn't think so. Which led to subsequent excavations in both the 1930s and the 1980s and 90s. The 1930s effort was led by an American archaeologist named Carl Blagan. His digs, between 1932 and 1938, resulted in dividing the nine levels of Troy into 46 sublevels. Of these sublevels, Blagan came to believe that the level immediately after Troy 6, a level named Troy 7A, was a more likely candidate for Homer's Troy. Blagan's theory went like this. Troy 6, the level with the monumental architecture, had been destroyed by first an earthquake, then a fire, in quick succession, around 1250 BC. Troy 7A had risen from the ashes of Troy 6 and was characterized by a more slapdash construction. This new iteration of the city had also fallen victim to fire around 1180 BC. Blagan's discovery of Mycenaean-style arrowheads and unburied skeletons in the remains of Troy 7A led him to believe that Greek warriors had been responsible for its destruction. In 1988, Hisarlik was excavated by another team led by a German archaeologist named Manfred Korfmann. His digs, which lasted until 1993, appeared to restore pride of place to Troy VI. Using magnetic imaging in the fields below the citadel, Korfmann discovered a ditch, dated to Troy VI, that he thought represented the outer defenses of a much larger city. At the same time, he also confirmed the presence of bronze arrowheads and fire-damaged skeletons in Troy 7A. But that also fit well with a new theory, one that goes something like this. Blagan's evidence for an earthquake at Troy 6 was mainly based on collapsed walls and masonry. But unlike at other earthquake-prone sites like Mycenae, there's no evidence of bodies crushed to death beneath the rubble. The walls of Troy 6 had collapsed, yes, but as you can see in photographs from Schliemann's digs, it's often hard to discern earthquake damage from man-made destruction. So one current theory is that Troy VI, the well-built city described in Homer's Iliad, was the Troy that fell to Greek armies in the mid-13th century BC. Troy 7a, roughly built on the ashes of its predecessor, had lingered on until 1180 BC when it was finally sacked and burned by the invading sea peoples. Just like the great palaces of Mycenaean Greece and the cities of the Hittites, Troy 7a was another casualty of the Bronze Age collapse.
As we've seen, it's virtually impossible to excavate Troy, or even talk about Troy, without trying to somehow make it line up with Homer. So let's step back for a minute and see what we think we know. Once upon a time, in the mid-13th century BC, there was a city called Willusa. Its siding near the Dardanelles made the city a nexus for regional trade, and it grew to be wealthy, powerful, and at least quasi-independent. Willusa had ties with both the Hittite Empire to the east and the King of Ahiawa to the west. While the Hittite contacts went back centuries, to the time of the Hittite Old Kingdom, relations with Ahiawa were both more recent and more problematic. At the time, the king of Ahiawa was extending his power over the Anatolian coast from his base at Milawata, classical Miletus. While he was successful in peeling off some territories, the Hittites apparently drew the line at Walusa. In a 1250 BC letter to the king of Ahiawa, the Hittite ruler Hattusili III refers to an agreement on Walusa, over which we went to war. Hittite documents named the king of Walusa as Alexandu, oddly similar to Alexandros, the other name given to the Trojan prince Paris in the Iliad. A Hittite treaty with Alexandu, sealed in 1280 BC, was sworn in the name of the storm god of the army, Apollyunus, very possibly the Greek and Trojan god Apollo. Also, the Hittite word for exceptionally courageous, primua, may over time have given us the name of King Priam. During the same period, the Mycenaean Greeks were at the height of their power, exerting influence over all of mainland Greece, the islands of the Aegean, and, very possibly, the Anatolian coast. The influence wasn't in the form of a unified empire, but more like a vast confederacy of powerful rulers. Archaeology shows that the major cities of the age included Pylos, Thebes, Sparta, Yalkis, and Orchomenus, a good match with Homer, but the greatest of them all was Mycenae. The connection from the king of Mycenae to the king of Ahiawa, Homer's Achaeans, isn't difficult to make, nor is the connection from Willusa to Ilion or Troy. Making these substitutions gives us the story of a late Bronze Age war between the Hittites and Greeks over possession of ancient Troy. Later on, the conflict spread to Milawata itself, which was eventually seized by the Hittite king Tutalia IV. Contemporary Linear B tablets, recovered by Carl Blagan at Pylos, also record female slaves captured in the Troad. Whether they may have been booty brought back from such a Trojan war remains an open question. Of course, none of these facts necessarily points toward a massive combined Mycenaean Greek assault on the city of Troy in the mid-13th century BC. Nor do they tell us anything about the specific characters and events portrayed in the Trojan War cycle, 
the legendary figures of Agamemnon, Hector, Helen, the great doomed warrior Achilles, and the clever ruse of the Trojan horse. But we need to keep in mind that these details are the end result of a dozen generations of oral tradition, combined with the artistic license of each storyteller to add, change, or remove characters and other elements to craft the story they wanted to tell. That said, even after passing through this long, slow process of creation, one element has come down to us virtually unchanged. The setting. As historian Michael Wood pointed out in his great BBC series In Search of the Trojan War, the Iliad is essentially the Greek national epic. So why would it be set in a remote corner of western Anatolia unless something significant, something worth remembering, had actually happened there? Perhaps this, more than anything, argues for the historicity of the Trojan War. Next episode, we'll drop in on George Smith as he makes the discovery that will put him at ground zero of a debate between science and religion, history and legend, the epic of Gilgamesh and the biblical flood, next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.